Good morning. Uh, I hope that you are at home and that you are healthy this morning. Thank you for joining us for this streaming worship. Uh, we're going to begin like we always do. Uh, this is a time when we open the Word of God and we study it together. And uh, we always ask Him to speak to us and to teach us. So pray with me if you would. Father, we thank you for this time to be taught. We thank you for this time that your spirit uses your word to actually change us, make us more like your son Jesus. So would you do that now? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, we turn our eyes away from our study of the book of Revelation this morning. For the next few weeks, we're going to be preparing ourselves for what's coming, and that is Easter. We are going to start a little series on the subject of hope. I heard a pastor say recently that church, churches in general, and I would say certainly our church as well, is actually in the business of hope, presenting hope, living in hope, uh, letting others discover the hope that is in Jesus. Uh, As you know, you just saw a moment ago, back in February, uh, over 600 of us participated in uh, an event called Feed My Starving Children. The meals that we made were recently shipped, as you heard, to Haiti, and uh, those shipments went out just before the shipments stopped. But understand, those meals that we put together and those meals that we got to send, well, that whole deal was really about this thing of hope, giving hope to people who are pretty desperate. And this morning, I want to talk uh, in a personal way about the hope of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. And I want to start by asking you a question. What are you hoping for? Are you uh, hoping to not get or not spread the coronavirus? That's a good hope. Uh, Maybe you have some other health concerns and you're hoping to get a clean bill of health regarding those health concerns. Or maybe your hope, what you're hoping for has to do with work. You would like to get back to work. Or maybe you would like to get a promotion or maybe you want to get a project done or finish a deal that will bring some income. Uh, Maybe your hope is around the matter of relationship. You're hoping for one or you're hoping to fix one that's broken. The point is just this. All of us, everybody included, we are all hopers. Um, When we were little, we hoped for things like parents who would love us. Uh, We hoped for friends who would like us. Uh, We hoped to make the team or we hoped to get in a good school or we hoped to make grades while we were good grades while we were in that school. And then, of course, the time comes years later when we hope to get out of school and we hope to get rid of the school debt that we may have accumulated. Then we hope for a spouse, many of us, uh, somebody to marry. Then we hope for a house to live with that spouse uh, in and comfortably. And of course, here in Denver, that's a pretty expensive proposition. Uh, Then many people hope for children. And of course, years later, they hope those children will move out of that house. Um, You hope for better and better jobs along the way. Uh, Then you hope to retire from that job. And then what do you hope for? Some people hope for travel or recreation or to spend time with grandkids or some are just looking for an opportunity to sleep in. But it's a strange thing about us. We outgrow a lot of our hopes, a lot of the stuff we hope for. But nobody outgrows hoping. You never get too old to hope. 
Some eras tend to be more hope-filled than other eras. If you're into U.S. history, you may already know this. After the United States won the War of 1812, which we fought against England, uh, there was such a strong sense of purpose and shared national unity that 1812 to 1825 became known to American historians as the era of good feelings. That's what they labeled it. What do you think they'll call this era that we live in right now? When you think about our nation these days, we've got coronavirus that we're processing like so many other nations. We have social distancing going on. Uh, we have the hoarding of household necessities. Uh, we have the, an economic downturn that's quite significant already. We'll see where that goes. And we have a, a full measure of political discord. Uh, would you say that people are pretty optimistic in our era? I don't think so. There are a lot of indications that we're actually facing a shortage of hope. The Center for Disease Control, something none of us had probably heard of only weeks ago, but now we all know about the Center for Disease Control. They noted recently that we've gone through three years where the average life expectancy in the United States has declined. That has not happened for more than 100 years. And it's not because of things like heart disease or cancer. Those deaths are actually down. The causes of death that are soaring are from drug abuse, opiate crisis, alcohol-related deaths, and suicide. And these are being called the diseases of despair. It was two economists from Princeton that coined that phrase, diseases of despair. And in the last 20 years, fatalities to these causes that you might think of as despair deaths, they have tripled in the last 20 years. And we, our children, are dying literally of hopelessness. In Western societies, both rates of marriage and birth rates are declining. And that's in spite of technology, wonderful technology. That's in spite of education. Sociologists say this happens when there is a lack of hope. People wonder if this world is one they ought to bring children into. That's a hope issue. The biggest trends in video and movies are illustrative of what I'm talking about. Think about the amazing technology we have and the incredible stories we could tell with that technology. But instead of telling stories of heroism or moral beauty or courage and things of that nature, we tell stories about zombies, zombie apocalypse, historical zombies like Abraham Lincoln, child zombies, animal zombies. Those are the movies, apparently, that we want to watch. John Hopkins says that depression and anxiety are up across all ages, the most up ages happen to be between the ages of 12 and 17. There's another strange dynamic. Of course, one form of disappointment uh, is you hope for something, you long for something, and you never get it. We all know that disappointment. But another source is when you hope for something and you get it, and then you realize, wow, it's not everything I thought it was cracked up to be, right? Getting what I hoped for didn't satisfy me quite the way I thought that it would. Uh, Tim Keller quoted a New York columnist 
who had known a lot of people, people like Sylvester Stallone or Julia Roberts. These are folks who actually came to New York City to make it big. And of course, most people who do that don't. They never make it big, but a few do. And uh, when they do, they discover that making it big doesn't bring them the happiness that they were looking for. And so this New York columnist that Keller quotes writes the following. It says, one of the funny things was that after they got famous, if anything, they were more unhappy, angry, and mean than they had been before. Because that giant thing that they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay and was going to provide them with fulfillment and happiness had happened and nothing changed. They were still them. Wow, what a line. They were still them. That's their problem. That's our problem too. Friends, uh, we're hard creatures to satisfy. But this actually says something quite profound and important about us, about our identity, about human nature. Uh, The great thinker, a Danish Christian philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, put it like this. He said, if there were nothing eternal in a man, he could not despair. In other words, if we were just a bundle of appetites and instincts, and mind you, A lot of people think that's exactly what we are, and a lot of people want to convince you and me of that. But if that were true, life would not be the kind of problem it is for us. It would be just a search for survival, a search for pleasure. That's all it would be. But you see, we are not just appetites and instincts. We have another kind of longing deeply implanted in our being. Uh, The writer of the book of Ecclesiastes said a long time ago that God has set eternity in the heart of man. Uh, It's in you and you know it. So do I. That's why capitalism or socialism or workaholism or money or success or pleasure cannot fill the emptiness that gnaws at our souls. If there were nothing eternal in a person... They could not despair, but there is, and we do, in the quiet moments of isolation or aloneness. Many of us have moments of despair. Now, the deeper question in all of this is, what is my fallback hope when I don't get the thing I'm really hoping for, or when I do and I realize that doesn't satisfy, not very long, not very deeply, Well, then the question is, what do I put my hope in? You see, hope in, which is what I'm talking about, is much deeper than hope for. Hope in is an anchor for the soul. Uh, It's kind of interesting. There's a famous metaphor in a poem that Emily Dickinson wrote many years ago. And in that poem, she says, hope is the thing with feathers, It's like a bird. That's the picture, the metaphor she's she's using here. It's like a bird in the human soul that that always wants to take flight, always wants to sing, even in the worst of circumstances. Hope is the thing with feathers. And that's an interesting metaphor, but I'm more intrigued by what the writers of the Bible say with regards to this, this thing of hope. They talk about hope in a very different way. They talk about hope as if it's the anchor to the soul. It's what holds us and keeps us steady in the midst of a storm. Hope is what keeps you going when you've lost what you were hoping for. 
The Apostle Paul uh, did not have much to say about hoping for stuff, which is what our world is preoccupied with. The Apostle Paul uh, and other biblical writers rarely wrote from enjoying great circumstances, great situations, and they rarely wrote to people who were experiencing great circumstances, and they pretty much never write predicting the imminent arrival of great circumstances. But they have a lot to say about what the human race ought to put its hope in. The most influential words, perhaps, ever written in the human language about hope come from the Apostle Paul. Uh, He writes a, a letter. It's in the first letter to the church at Corinth. And he starts there by summarizing the gospel. This is what he writes. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried. But uh, Paul here is actually summarizing this thing of the gospel, the good news for us. And he says to these Corinthians, he says, you have taken your stand on it. We're going to come back to that idea uh, a little later because I I want to invite you to do exactly that in, in a moment. But first, I want to give you two big reasons for taking your stand, for putting your hope in Jesus Christ. And the first reason is just this. This good news, this gospel that we are talking about is historical. It's part of a story. It really happened. There was a man named Jesus. He lived like nobody else had ever lived before. He taught like nobody had ever taught before. People couldn't forget him once they met him. They weren't always going to follow him, but they couldn't forget him. They couldn't put him out of their mind. They couldn't resist him. They were mystified by this man and by what he was doing. And ironically, this is a man who never wrote a book, but more books have been written about him than any other human being in history. Uh, What is more, he never posed for a painting, and yet more paintings have been done of Jesus than any other human being in history. This is a man who died on a cross. He was a failure. He was a reject. And yet he said he chose to lay down his life. He chose to die. He embraced his death, even though nobody at the time understood why he was doing this. And when he died in that moment, on that day, his movement was completely and utterly finished until three days later when it was not. Something happened that resurrected his movement and his followers insisted that what resurrected the movement was actually the resurrection of the leader, the resurrection of Jesus himself. And because of his resurrection, the cross which had been up until that time just a symbol of failure and humiliation, a symbol of execution, became instead the world's greatest symbol of hope. And that symbol adorns more graves with the hope of the resurrection than any other symbol. Here's how Paul describes this in a passage that's probably unique in all of ancient literature. Paul says that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. 
And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Historians generally agree that Paul wrote these words within about 20 years of the death of Jesus. Uh, So within a generation. And Paul deliberately, in his letter to the Corinthians, lists names of people. Cephas, Simon Peter, uh, saw Jesus after the resurrection, Paul says. The disciples did as well. Uh, There were 500 men men and women, uh, some of whom had died, but most of whom were still alive. They were living. And the point of all of that is very clear. Paul is saying, if you don't believe me, fine, check out the evidence elsewhere. Talk to someone who's still living who saw Jesus and interacted with Jesus after he had been crucified, after he had come back from the dead. So you see, the point is this, regardless what you might think about this thing of the resurrection, the resurrection was not intended by Paul or any of those folks to be understood as a metaphor or understood as a symbol, which is what so many claim today. Um, it, It was not poetical, this thing of the resurrection. It was historical. It actually happened. It is the only explanation for how a church got started after its Messiah got crucified. The resurrection then means that you can put your your ultimate hope in Jesus, something that happened to Jesus, this historical figure in the story of history. And here's how Paul expresses that. Paul would have uh, kind of, the readers uh, of Paul's, letter to the Corinthians would have picked up on this. Uh, Paul said that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And then he said that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Why that little phrase? What is Paul driving at there? Well, what he's saying is that we are a part of a great big story, a story that started thousands of years ago and was actually written down. It starts in the Old Testament. It starts with the whole story of God creating, and then he created human beings, and then sin enters the world, and then God begins a process right then, right there, early on, to redeem a people for himself. There's a story. Uh, There's such a thing as history, real history, facts in history. And there is this grand narrative that means something because at the heart of the narrative is God's plan to redeem. You see, Jesus' resurrection on the third day is actually the hinge on which history turns. It's the hope of the universe, the whole universe. Now, you might not believe that, maybe even understand that. Uh, You might be investigating all of that, and that's great. That's good. We're glad you are. But just know, regardless of what you or I might think, this actually happened. It's history. And this leads to the other reason that we should all put our hope in the gospel, in the the facts and the truth, the historical evidence about Jesus. And that is because the problem with the human race is that they were still them. There's that phrase again. That line that Tim Keller quotes from the columnist in the New York Times. They were still them. You see, even though we might get what we're hoping for that we think will make us happy, we're still us even when we get it. We're still broken. We still can't make life work. We can't make ourselves really 
work. But Paul says, on the third day, Jesus died on the cross for our sins according to the scriptures. There's a plan. There's a story. There's a purpose in what is happening in these events that unfolded in the life and in the resurrection of Jesus. This gets very personal for Paul, as it should also for us, if we're really weighing these historical events and the implications of them. Paul writes this, he says, And last of all, he, Jesus, appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. This is very poignant. Paul uses uh, a little word. It's translated here, abnormally born. It's a very odd word. Uh, It's the Greek word, ektroma. It's only used one time in all of scripture. It's the word that they would have used then for an aborted fetus. Interesting choice of words, Paul. Um, This was a common practice in the Roman Empire, this thing of abortion. Uh, And Paul calls himself an aborted fetus. And by that, I think he's driving at the fact that he's not wanted, not really. Uh, He's someone who's messed up, goofed up, unimpressive, sinful, guilty, separated from God. In Paul's case, somebody who did horrible things, even killed the friends of Jesus, sought to put them in prison, sought to take their life. That's what Paul was up to when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. And yet in spite of all of that, uh, in spite of all those things, a long list of things that would make Paul very unwanted, perhaps from God's perspective, in spite of that, Jesus died for his sins. That's what Paul came to understand. And he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. What he's saying is, I'm somebody very different than I used to be. I've changed. You see, Paul knew God's grace personally, and that changed him completely. And I would just say, friends, whoever you are, whatever you've done, God's grace can change you. It can make you spiritually alive. Jesus offers us all this grace, this mercy that he gave to Paul, forgiveness of our sins as a gift of grace. Salvation from our sins as a gift of grace. Eternal life with God as a gift of grace. Paul says Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It was part of a plan. It's part of a story. Now it's a finished, completed historical event. And this gospel, this good news is for each of us. And it raises a question. We always, uh, we we arrive at um, kind of a crossroads when we're presented this message. When we look at the life of Jesus, what he did, what he said. And the question is, what will we do with this? You see, when we hear and understand the gospel, the question is, how will we respond to this? You see, you can live your life hoping for things hoping your circumstances will change and life will get better. It'll get easier. It'll get brighter. But I would tell you, if and when your circumstances do change, you're only going to discover that those new circumstances will not actually bring you what you're looking for. They will fall short. 
You see, I'm not asking you, what are you hoping for? There are many good things to hope for. But I am asking you, what are you hoping in? Which is a much more important question to answer. You can live if you want for your achievements or your, com- your accomplishments, your security, your comfort, your possessions, your money, your job. You can do that. But just know, none of those things will last. None of them. None of those things will bring you lasting satisfaction or happiness. All of those things are, in fact, going to wind up in the dump someday. That's where stuff goes, goes to the dump. Your house, your cars, your career, your bikes, your RVs, your money, your investments, none of it, none of it will last. It's all going to the dump one day. Paul had this fascinating statement that he made to his young friend, Timothy, who was also a preacher of the gospel. And Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, command those who are rich in this present world. And that, friends, is all of us. All of us are rich in comparison to other times and other places in this world. We are the rich. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is uncertain. We're learning that right now. The market up, down, right? Riches are very uncertain, but he says to put their hope in God. It's hope in that matters, not hope for. You can live for what is temporal. That is, you can live for yourself. You can live for what's going to end up in the dump, or you can live for Jesus. You can live for what is eternal. You can become a follower of Jesus and mark the lives of others for eternity. You can experience the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and the hope of life forever in the future lived with God. Paul's description of this is what he talks about with the folks there at Corinth. He says, this is the gospel on which you have taken your stand. The idea is that just as with my body, I'm standing here on a platform. I have a foundation. Otherwise, you know, you wouldn't see me. Uh, It's the same with my, my eternal existence, with my inner being or my soul, so to speak. I have to take a stand on something. And we always are taking a stand on something, basing our life on Something And the question is, what is that something? You see, we are either hoping for this thing or that thing to happen so my life will be better, so that I can be happy, so that I will be satisfied, or we are hoping in Jesus, standing on Jesus, as it were, making him our foundation. You see, what you hope in can change your life forever. It can deliver you from the problem of still being you, right? What you hope for, stuff, will eventually just wind up in the dump. This Easter season, I want us, as we prepare for Easter to come, I want us to be very consciously making Jesus our hope, putting our hope in him, not in other things. 
Uh, if you sense God is prompting you in any way to do that right now, if your heart is kind of pumping, you've been following along and you're one of the few that made it to the end of the message online. You understood that as we spoke that Jesus' death on the cross was something directly relevant to you and to your problem of brokenness and sin. If you, if you want to belong to him and you want that to move from just ideas in your head to reality in your heart, if, if you want to put your hope in him, this is your moment. Regardless where you are, this is your moment. And I'm going to say a prayer in just a bit, and I would invite you, if, if you have never committed your life to Jesus before, if you, if you have not actually put your hope in him before, I mean, this is why the church exists, friends, to celebrate this hope, to preach this hope, to embrace this hope, to encourage us one and all to, to maintain this hope. But we exist to help others discover this hope as well. And, you know, if we were gathered in this room, I think I, think I would invite you, if you were, were feeling this sense that, that God wants you to take this step, I, I think I would invite you to stand so that you could say with your body what, in fact, you're saying with your heart. Here is where I stand. I'm going to stand on Jesus. But since we can't do that, I want to invite you to indicate that you're taking this stand or putting your hope in Jesus just by connect, just by clicking on the, uh, the connect link that you see at the top of the comment section next to you. Why do I ask this? Well, it, it's important that you indicate that you're making this decision to someone. It's important you share this truth because this is a pivotal moment in your life. And uh, by filling out that connect card that that link will take you to, you're letting us know, you know, I made this commitment. I'm going to follow Jesus and we'll be praying for you. And we'll want to do anything we can to help you grow in your understanding of making that commitment. If you have never clearly committed your life to Jesus, never put your faith in him before, never received his grace, and you want to do that today, you can do it simply by praying this prayer with me. This prayer is pretty self-explanatory. Pray with me. God, I'm done living for myself and depending on myself. I'm trusting in you. I confess my sin, my not loving or serving you, my not acknowledging that you are God. I'm committing my life to you. I'm putting my hope in you, Jesus. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sins and give me a fresh start. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for paying for my sin. Thank you for conquering death and coming back from the grave so I can have life everlasting with you. Today, I declare my decision to follow you, Jesus. From this day forward, you are my savior, my leader, my guide, and my God. You are my foundation. This day, I take my stand on you. Amen. Here's the deal. If you prayed that prayer, God knows it. Several things have happened. 
God has now put his spirit inside you to live in you, to encourage you, to teach you, to change you, to convict you of sin. There's, there is no more important decision in the world that you could make than the decision to say, Jesus, I am going to follow you. And I would just make a, a quick recommendation to you. Not only fill out that Connect card online uh, so that we can be praying for you, but you start praying. You now have the door kicked wide open. God wants to hear from you. Pray to him, talk to him about what you're thinking, what you're going through, where you are in life. God wants to hear your prayers. Another thing I would encourage you to do is to get a Bible. If you don't have one, we'll send you one. We'll get you one. But get a Bible. Start reading it. Start reading one of the Gospels. There's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Pick one. I recommend John, great place to start. I actually became a follower of Jesus just reading that book. Why read a Gospel? Well, it just tells you more about who you've just committed your life to. You need to know more about him. Now, to the rest of us, most of us uh, that have made it through a whole sermon online, uh, we've already put our faith and our trust in Jesus. But you know what? We all have a problem of hoping for things to satisfy us, to make us happy, and forgetting that we just need to be hoping in Jesus. So my encouragement as we move towards Easter now in these next few weeks, be focused on keeping your hope, not in cures to the virus, although that's a great thing, not in just getting back to work, that would be a great thing. Those are great things, but not the greatest. Keep your hope in Jesus. Take your stand on him.